This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Congressman Ro Khanna, Democrat of California, talks about his book, Dignity in a Digital Age. He discusses the digital divide in America and offers his suggestions on how to close the gap. You know, at the heart of the book is this sense, well, you had the deindustrialization of so many places in this country. You've had the lack of economic opportunity in places. And these are proud places. I mean, Cleveland was the Silicon Valley uh, of a time in the 20th century, as was Detroit. Uh, they don't want just all these Silicon Valley billionaires making money uh, and having some handout. They want to participate with pride in the economic production of the 21st century. He's interviewed by founder and editor-in-chief of The Markup, Julia Engwin. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Congressman, thank you for joining us to talk about your book, Dignity in a Digital Age. Thank you for having me. I have to say I admire the... Oh, it's a pleasure. I have to say I admire the work you put into your book. Um, It would have been... I think very easy to just put together the usual political vagueness about how we should all live in peace and harmony. (laughs) But you actually interrogate your own positions in a really interesting way. You fact check your results of the job training programs that you tout. You take positions on things like the right to repair that likely don't make you friends in your district with the tech giant Apple. It's a brave book in that respect. Um, And it made me think about what was your general philosophy uh, writing this? You know, we share a bit of history. We both went to University of Chicago. I grew up in Palo Alto, which is not your district, but a few miles away. And those are both very libertarian free marketplaces, right? And you do have a strain of that in your book. Um, you do really believe in free enterprise and innovation, but you do advocate for a lot of robust government intervention in mergers, privacy protection, jobs creation, and I would love to hear from you your like your overarching governing philosophy and how you square it with like the sometimes libertarian views of your district. Well, I appreciate uh, the time you took to read read the actual book, uh, which is not always the case. Uh, I would say two things. One on the book itself, my uh, theme was how do we have more democratic accountability for technology and that. Uh, technology both in terms of the impact on the economy and in terms of the impact on the public sphere uh, has been disconnected in my view from democratic accountability. It's led to a concentration of economic opportunity on the economic side and it's led to a insular decision making on the public sphere side and the thesis of the book is how do we uh, democratize that. In terms of a more governing philosophy, I mean I often remind uh, tech leaders that uh, you know, they started out on third base. I mean, it was uh, DARPA and Vince Cerf who uh, really came up with the Internet. A lot of uh, GPS was developed at DARPA. You had NSF then uh, fund a lot of the connectivity. Uh, and so I deeply admire the entrepreneurship and innovation of uh, a lot of the uh, Silicon Valley leaders. But uh, I don't think that they should forget a lot of the government spending and government investment that went into it. And government certainly has a role uh, to make sure people have equal access now to participating in that market. 
Uh, as I often say, you may have a competition on a football field, but everyone has to have helmets and a uniform, and government is basically trying to do that, and not everyone in our country currently has basically the fundamental equipment to succeed in a market economy. Um, got it. Well, that is, um, I, I'm interested to know what uh, you hear from your the tech leaders when you remind them of that, because my experience as a journalist is they don't always like to be reminded of the government origins of some of our most powerful technology. Well, they, some of the ones who are more thoughtful uh, get it. I mean, I, I, I think the what offends, in my view, the uh, m- many people about technology is the bravado, the, 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 the uh, utopianism, uh, the arrogance, right? So I don't think anyone would fault a t- tech platform if they said, look, we've created these platforms, so- social media, et cetera, and we didn't really anticipate all of the negative harms. But they, that wasn't their approach. They said, we've created these platforms and we're going to have peace and mutual understanding. And part of me thought, well, if it were that easy, why would you need political philosophy? Why would you need political theory? If you could just put up a platform and everyone talks and somehow that's going to have equality and uh, dialogue, uh, then you wouldn't need 200 years or thousands of years of, uh, of political thinking. And so I think the same thing is true about the point of the government origins. I don't think anyone uh, thinks that Elon Musk isn't a, a, a great, talented entrepreneur or Steve Jobs or uh, or others, but they just if they just acknowledged their debt, for example, uh, Elon Musk got loans from the Treasury Department for Tesla, and he prepaid those fast because he didn't want the government to make a lot of money, uh, and that was all legal, but you should just acknowledge that instead of just saying, well, I everything I did was because of me. Right. Well, uh, it's a good um, lesson in humility, which is, you know, rare in Silicon Valley. Um, I want to talk about um, concentration of economic power, which you mentioned as one of the top themes in your book. Um, you, It's a hot topic in Washington right now, and I trust it feels like one of the few issues with bipartisan support. Um, in your book, you lay out four antitrust principles that you say could prevent big tech from boxing out competitors while not destroying services that consumers want, rules to prevent abuse of dominance, rules to foster duty to deal fairly, the right to repair, limit to mergers. But you say you want to steer clear of overbroad measures like breaking up big tech. You opposed the House antitrust bill that passed out of committee last year and um, said it was poorly drafted. And now the Senate has just passed uh, committee legislation containing similar principles. So I'm curious where you stand on the current antitrust legislation and what you want to see more of from it. So I support largely uh, Senator Klobuchar's approach. And uh, and I think the Senate version is better uh, than the House version. There's still c- certain tweaks I would make. But let me give you the overall uh, philosophy. I mean, I, I do think certain cases breakups are justified on Facebook, for example, where they've acquired Instagram and WhatsApp. Uh, I do think that there uh, you should have uh, a unraveling of, of that company. And I think we want to have a uh, ban on mergers uh, that are acquiring uh, competitors. Uh, but I don't think you want to ban uh, or be overly restrictive on all mergers, as there are a lot of startups that uh, have that as an acquisition strategy as their exit. And so I think Klobuchar says, uh, Senator Klobuchar says, over $5 billion, there should change the default setting. We can debate whether it's $5 billion or $1 billion. That seems to me uh, very reasonable. 
you want to make sure, in my view, that companies shouldn't be able to discriminate against sellers. So uh, let's take uh, Amazon or Apple. Uh, they, if I or you or someone else wants to sell on there, uh, I think they should have a duty uh, to allow that. They shouldn't be able to discriminate against selling because they are such important platforms. At the other, uh, but what I do say is there has to be a balance. If they don't want, for example, Parler or some uh, app that violates their fundamental values or violates their security, uh, they should have that ability as long as they can show that, and I argue basically for a balancing test. Uh, where I thought some of the House bills didn't go, uh, weren't w drafted well enough, is there wasn't this balancing test. There wasn't a sense of, okay, well, uh, it's, if, it, if you are discriminating against a seller, but you can show why it's a good reason, like in my view on Parler, then you should be able to do so. If you could add that balancing test, I would be fine with the legislation. You had mentioned last year that you were maybe going to be working to craft an alternative uh, antitrust bill in the House. Is that still something you're working on? Well, I want to work on where people are at uh, because I don't want to do some alternative that has no momentum and then doesn't get through committee. So what I have said to, uh, to, to the drafters of those bills is I'm happy to work with them. I understand where they're coming from uh, to help uh, bring them to a point where they, they can pass. And I do think the Senate efforts were... Uh, were promising. I mean, I think that some of the uh, the tweaks made in the Senate bill were better in terms of this balancing, and, and we can get there with the House. So I've kept an open mind uh, on on the legislation. Um, and I mean, I imagine it's tricky for you a little bit. Google's one of your top campaign contributors. They're in your district. They put out a blog post that appeared to be opposing Senator Klobuchar's antitrust bill, although actually did not state what they were exactly opposing, claiming that generally Congress's anti-tech stance and proposals were going to harm national security, innovation, small businesses, security and privacy. They didn't provide a lot of specifics um, about what legislation or proposals they were attacking. But I'm curious what you make of their blanket sort of denunciation of Congress's approach to tech legislation and how you balance your stands with um, with their interests. Yeah, well, they're obviously in my district, and while I don't take corporate money or PAC money directly from Google, it's fair to say that I have uh, a lot of uh, employees at, at Google uh, or, or people, at tech leaders at Google and other tech companies who have supported me, and I'm proud of the support of having innovators uh, and, and, and technology leaders. But I have been critical of the company in a number of places, including in the book. I say the deal that they have with Apple uh, in terms of being the default browser is, in my view, uh, too exclusive and that they Apple should offer more uh, choices for people in terms of what browser, uh, I mean, what type of search engine to, to use. Uh, and I have uh, criticized uh, sort of on Maps, for example, that Google should offer other uh, services on, on Maps. So I, I guess... I, there are places in, on data collection. Obviously, the Internet Bill of Rights are a, a lot of provisions which uh, they may not like, such as having a collection of data only after your opt-in consent. So I guess uh, the point is I'm not a person who reflexively says uh, technology uh, in Silicon Valley and Apple and Google are bad. I don't think that. I think they do provide significant value to society in terms of the disinformation dis uh, uh, being spread out and people having access to information in terms of communication. Uh, but I, I think there needs smart, well-crafted regulations. And I certainly wouldn't 
of a broadside against the Senate bill uh, is sort of weakening uh, national security or whatever else they, they said. I mean, I think there has to be a specific concerns of uh, w- whether the legislation is uh, thoughtful or not, not sort of a, a, a just a broadside press release. Yeah, and I imagine that your Internet Bill of Rights also probably doesn't isn't something that they would agree with every piece of. I was wondering if you could just outline, you do have, I think, 10 principles. Um, you don't have to go through them all, but uh, I'd be interested just to hear your, your Bill of Rights. It, it reminded me of the Obama administration. They proposed a Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights. I don't know if you ever looked yeah, at it. It was interesting. That one had seven sort of principles and focused them around what individuals should have a right to expect. And your proposal is a little bit more specific around solutions like opt-in consent or net neutrality. I'd be interested to hear about your thinking for choosing sort of more solutions versus principles and then also the principles um, themselves that informed you. I think President Obama, you're obviously very well informed on the topic, made a, a good start with this and Todd Park uh, who was in the Obama administration is someone I had actually consulted, as well as Megan Smith in, in drafting this, and then Tim Berners-Lee. I think the difference is when I came around uh, to doing this, it was after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and just having the right to know what was happening with your data, which is basically the orientation of the Obama framework, seemed insufficient. Uh, the challenge is that uh, when these companies get our data, and if they use that data uh, to create uh, intricate social profiles and then target us, uh, that is uh, allowing for a lot of manipulation. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that QAnon is growth on uh, Facebook, on YouTube, on other social media sites is because of uh, these companies basically taking data and targeting people who would be susceptible to that message. Uh, and then you look at Instagram and the challenges that it has posed, particularly for teenagers, for teenage girls in terms of depression, anxiety, uh, self-consciousness of how they look. Uh, In some cases, it's the worst of junior high now amplified uh, on social media. And so what the Internet Bill of Rights, the the core of it is to say, well, we've got to restrict the access and use of data, that the data should not be uh, used to manipulate people's agency. Uh, This means first opt-in consent, but it also means data minimization, that people shouldn't be using data in ways that uh, isn't necessary for the core function. And as Jack Balkin writes, and I quote him, there should be sort of a fiduciary duty between people who have this data and and the well-being of of consumers. And I I think if we can restrict the use of this data, uh, we would do a lot in restoring people's confidence that uh, they can be free agents, uh, free thinkers, uh, and not subject to the manipulation on these platforms. You say in the book that if you could choose one law that would improve the online experience and you could only choose one, you would choose opt-in consent for data collection, transfer, and use. And anyone who's ever been greeted by the accept cookies prompt <laughs> on a website knows that it's pretty easy to get you to opt-in if you just harass the user enough. <laughs> um, and, you know, if you think back to situations like the fight for seatbelts in cars, you would have to say that opting in is not good enough for basic safety standards. So given what we know about the harms of um, data collection, tell me why you think opt-in is a good enough standard. Well, it's not sufficient, uh, but I think it's necessary and, and can move the needle. Uh, the uh, reality is that you're right. With dark patterns, I mean, the GDPR in Europe had opt-in consent, and the tech companies figured out how to have 
the right type of sizes on the websites, the right type of uh, boxes where basically they were getting many people to consent. So you need uh, real opt-in consent, which means that you need the FTC uh, to be enforcing efforts to manipulate that. And you need regulations to show that uh, you have clear, simple to understand uh, guidelines for people to opt in, uh, that it should not be uh, something that's happening 20 times every time these boxes are popping up, but the first time or second time you're choosing a service that you could give uh, clear guidelines of what you want and what you don't want, uh, and that people aren't being manipulated. Uh, and that's not going to solve the entire problem. Partly, people they're constructing uh, profiles, as I mentioned in the book, uh, based on other people's data. They're able to get you, your profile through inference. And so we need more than opt-in consent, and that we need data minimization. We need a fiduciary responsibility. But I think opt-in consent is a good uh, first step to, to help uh, with some of the worst abuses. And I don't know if you've um, seen what um, they do in France, but the regulators there are so strict on opt-in. So when you are in France and you surf the web, it literally says, I accept cookies, I do not. And you just get to say no every time. And it's the, <laughs> it's actually the most fun <laughs> um, kind of video game because you just keep saying no everywhere you go and you still get to see the whole website. Um, so it would be nice if, uh, if opt-in could be enforced in that way like you're describing. Um, what do you think about, though, there's more, um, you know, aggressive proposals out there. Your colleague, Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, um, who represents my former hometown of Palo Alto, has introduced le- legislation to ban surveillance advertising, which would force advertisers to return to their old techniques of just advertising based on content near the ad or the geography of where the user is located. Some say it could be a good way to break up the Google and Facebook dominance of online ad markets, and others say it could destroy the industry. Um, What do you think? Do you support her bill? I'm not for a total ban, uh, because I think there are certain uses of targeted advertising that are fine. For example, uh, if I'm living in Fremont, which is uh, my home, and I want to have pizza, uh, it's fine that the pizza places that are advertising to me uh, are near Fremont and not in Washington, D.C. or in Chicago. Uh, and a lot of small businesses actually rely on targeted advertising. A lot of actually, ironically, newspapers, smaller newspapers rely on targeted advertising because they can't pay uh, bulk, uh, bulk rates. And so just to ban all targeted advertising uh, strikes me as uh, overbroad. Uh, but I, I do think this is where if individuals can say, uh, here are things that I don't want uh, to be targeted for, that my data shouldn't be used in these ways, uh, then you could come to some uh, medium. And, of course, if people are being targeted on categories of race or gender or religion, uh, we, you know, that is a place where I think uh, you should have broader regulations and prohibitions. And her bill does does allow, by the way, the targeting in Fremont geographically, and um, so it attempts to do some sort of straddling of that line. But um, you know, it's hard to know where that line is. I mean, we, um, as a journalist, I've been writing about Facebook's, you know, discriminatory advertising forever, and yeah, you know, yeah. once they take out one little targeted thing like, okay, you can't target based on race, then people just use zip code. You know, there's always a way to find a proxy variable. Unfortunately. So it does become really hard to draw that line. Yeah, I know. I think on issues of race, I mean, obviously, if there's disparate impact, meaning if you're 
targeting to a zip code that's really a proxy to race, that that should be illegal. My, my sense is that is probably already illegal under existing laws, but if we want to have a supplemental law to, to make it clear that that's illegal, uh, we, we should. And I, I haven't studied Anna's bill in detail, but if it has sufficient uh, balance where you could still have small businesses and local papers use targeted advertising to build their businesses, uh, but that you're uh, getting at the most egregious types of uh, targeted advertising, then I would, I, I'd be supportive to, of, of that approach. One thing about um, the issue that we call privacy, which I call data exploitation, is that the massive collection and use of personal data is also a monopoly issue. Right? The big tech firms have the biggest data troves, and this is what gives Google and Facebook, for instance, a duopoly in online advertising and in the AI race. Do you view this data collection also as a monopoly issue in addition to a surveillance and privacy issue? And if so, how would you address it? Yes. No, I mean, I think it is a, a challenge. And the challenge is how do you address it without uh, violating privacy, right? So one solution would be, well, uh, do you give other people, other companies, access to that data? But then that doesn't seem right if people are giving their data with consent to a few companies to say that their data may be now used to other company, for other companies uh, in, uh, without their consent. So it's a, it's a very challenging uh, conundrum. One possibility uh, of longer term is there are sources of AI that are now emerging that I write briefly about in the book. Uh, that don't require troves of data. So, for example, when a young child learns a word, uh, it, a cat or a dog, we don't f uh, show a young child thousands and thousands of pictures of cats and dogs. They just kind of intuitively uh, figure it out. And Josh Tenenbaum at MIT is working on that. And I think the if those technologies emerge that minimize uh, a, a data's uh, value, that would be helpful. Uh, but, you know, I think in terms of uh, uh, Google or Apple or other antitrust issues, there are plenty of other issues on going after antitrust. I'm open to data. I, I guess I just would want to balance it with privacy and would have to think that, think that through. Um, speaking of AI, you do have a five-point plan for addressing AI in the book. And I, I just have to add, I'm definitely giving Elizabeth Warren, I have a plan for that vibes from your book. Um, and so you suggest we need government audits of high-risk AI systems, disclosure of algorithmic bias through bias impact statements, federal investments for the job loss created by AI, federal regulations for the workers who do the grunt work of AI labeling, meaningful human control in AI weapon systems, and finally, a strategy for maintaining our lead in AI compared with China. Um, there's a lot in there. Um, I wanted to start with the, uh, like a slight pushback on the idea of job loss created by AI, because I remember the time when we all thought workers were going to be replaced by robots. But weirdly, what's been happening, it seems, is more like managers are being replaced by robots. So all these workers, their boss is an app, right? The gig workers work for an algorithm. Amazon warehouse workers effectively work for an algorithm. And as much as we might dislike our bosses, it turns out that having a human boss is actually kind of an advantage. <laughs> um, we've been doing a series at the markup called Working for an Algorithm about the ways <laughs> that um, people are scammed. The Postmates, for instance, are being scammed out of money by people who call them and say they're calling from the main office. How would the Postmate know? They've never spoken to a human. Um, and then they get their account drained, right? 
And so when you talk about like investments for job loss created by AI, I'm just curious what kind of jobs do you see as being lost? And then like for instance, do we want to bring back these human managers? <laughs> is that is it middle management really the the place we're going to want to reinvest? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. I certainly don't believe we're uh, headed to a, a jobless future by 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 any stretch. I mean, I think you know, one of the points I make in, with Amazon where I call for a $15 minimum wage uh, and Amazon moved to $15 and everyone said, oh, if you have a higher wage, you're going to have robotis, ro- uh, more robots and they're going to displace workers. And it turns out Amazon hires over 800,000, 900,000 people. The, the challenge is that uh, they don't have often the dignity in, in, in their workplace and they are being uh, often surveilled by uh, these uh, technology uh, driven uh, driven machines. So I guess I would say two things on uh, the, the displacement that uh, I was talking about. It, it is the case that uh, things that are uh, largely routinized tasks can be uh, done with, uh, with AI or technology. And I would just say that we have to make sure then uh, that all workers uh, still have a dignity and have incomes and have more to their uh, contribution uh, than uh, just the, the the parts that can be uh, robotized. Uh, and so uh, how do we do that? How do we make sure that they're learning about the technology, using the technology, uh, and also uh, learning the skills to, to, to contribute? And that's, I think, uh, it's so less about the aggregate job loss and more about making sure it doesn't disproportionately impact uh, certain uh, communities, and then in terms of uh, the uh, boss point or who who you work for, I think that's a a very thoughtful point that uh, you want to have human discretion still there, uh, and you want to have workers having more empowerment uh, at the workplace. Uh, one point I uh, make in the book, and I cite Josh Cohen, who's a really thoughtful philosopher and now at Apple Computers, but he says, you know, in a democracy, we often talk about our freedom as citizens, but so much of our time is at a workplace. And if we don't feel free there, if we're suffering the indignities of uh, our boss or certainly of a robot, you know, what does that really mean for freedom in a, in a society? And so uh, I believe definitely that whether it's a robot or, or not, the workers need more of a voice in shaping uh, the 21st century workplace, which is certainly at Amazon warehouses they don't have. Yeah, absolutely. The Amazon warehouses, as you know, right, they've been advocating for the right to take bathroom breaks. I mean, that's definitely a little bit of a long road from there to human dignity in the workplace. Um, let's talk a little bit more about AI in China. Um, you talk about how there, we need to make sure we're going to win the arms race against China. And you quote John Mearsheimer, who's one of my favorite professors from our shared alma mater, University of Chicago. Um, uh, talking about the concerns of letting China get ahead of us. But, you know, I wonder what are you worried about them getting ahead of us in? Because what we hear about with China is them using AI to repress and surveil their citizens, to build autonomous weapon systems. I mean, are these the things we want to compete with them on? Well, there are good uses of AI and, and, and bad uses of AI, but certainly we don't want them uh, to develop... Uh, ability in space uh, or uh, abilities in uh, submarines and underwater uh, naval capacity that uh, puts us at a disadvantage. I mean, I I believe, for example, that uh, we have to make sure uh, policies on Taiwan that we don't want in any way 
China ever to consider invading uh, Taiwan. Uh, but more broadly, uh, the use of AI, uh, the use of uh, emerging technologies can propel productivity, can propel economic growth, can propel wealth generation. Uh, and those are things that we want in the United States. And I guess precisely to your point, we want values of uh, liberty and values of privacy uh, embedded in these platforms and not uh, a values that, and not a society that doesn't uh, necessarily value have those values in their technology. And so what do you think it will take for us to win the AI race with China? Well, as I advocate in the book, that I, I think we need more. We, we're doing a lot in terms of the private sector investment. We're eight to one on China. Uh, but the government really hasn't been involved. And I think the government needs to be involved uh, for two reasons. One, the type of transformative AI uh, the private sector may not have an interest for the reasons you mentioned earlier. I mean, it may be in the interest of tech companies to have AI dependent on data because it gives them a lot of uh, advantage. That doesn't mean that they're going to try to kill the innovation that's trying to be data-less AI, but they may not be investing in there. But the government could. We could be looking at investments uh, at universities and NSF on types of AI that may not be as data-dependent. Uh, and then we should be looking at the investments in the broader education and, uh, and, and, and training of folks to be uh, operating in this world. One of the biggest disservices that people uh, have done, in my view, is when they say, oh, you know, if you want to have a, a digital job, a tech job, you got to learn how to code. And, you know, I talk about computer science education, but it's so intimidating. And people say, I, I don't, you know, I know you learned how to code at a very young age, but most people say, I don't want to do all that math and science and technology. It turns out, uh, as technology advances, actually it becomes more usable. So, you know, I know very little about a car. And my dad knows everything about a car, how to open the hood, how to fix things. But I don't really need that anymore. I mean, the technology is so advanced. And same thing is true with computers. The technology, as it advances, it actually makes it more accessible. And there are millions of these jobs that if you just have a basic proficiency of understanding machines, people will be able to do without even a, a college degree. And part of the project that, of the book is trying to demystify what digital jobs are. Yeah, and look, I'd be a little bit remiss because actually that is like mo a lot of your book is about job creation, right? And I haven't actually touched on that yet. So let's talk about that. You have a lot. Um, you're really passionate about bringing jobs to places outside of Silicon Valley. And you have um, ideas for how to do that. It's an interesting question because um, some people, a lot of people are also advocating for we need to build more affordable housing in Silicon Valley and in other tech hubs and bring people to there, right? So there's different ways to view these issues, bring the people to where the jobs are now or bring the jobs to new locations. seems like you've staked out a position on the latter. Well, I advocate both. I mean, I'm for building more housing in Silicon Valley just for the internal equity in Silicon Valley. As you know, having visited there, there's a lot of uh, inequality in the valley. I, I represent a district with... Uh, over uh, $11 trillion of market cap in the surrounding areas. And yet in East San Jose and parts of San Jose, people are hugely rent burdened, 50, 60 percent of their income going to rent. So from a perspective of just the valley being a more equitable place to live, we've got to build more housing and more affordable housing there uh, and overcome the nimbyism in some of the uh, parts of, of the community. 
but that's not going to do enough for uh, the rest of the country. And one of the things I say is there, there are a lot of people who don't want to move to Fremont or, or Palo Alto. Uh, and we underestimate uh, their attachment to their hometown. We underestimate uh, the sense of value they may place on their tradition and their culture uh, and how people actually may be more reluctant to move now, uh, given the costs, uh, given the need for child care, uh, and given uh, the changing in the country. There's a, a familiarity of staying staying put. And so the promise of the book, in some sense, is new job creation without cultural displacement. What if we could bring more economic uh, prosperity to communities uh, without asking you to move uh, if you don't want to, uh, and without asking your kids to buy a one-way ticket out? Uh, and I think post-COVID, this forced remote experiment uh, actually makes it possible. I was One of the critiques, I had an essay on my book in the, in the Wall Street Journal, and one of my friends in the Valley said, Roe, I, I don't think we need any of your policies uh, because we're already doing this. We're already uh, recruiting all over the country and uh, recruiting in uh, African-American communities and Latino communities in rural America and having companies everywhere. Well, maybe they're doing a little bit more than in the past, but we've got a long ways to go, uh, and I think we can have policies that accelerate that. And what is the key policy you think that would make that transition happen? I would argue two things. First, a significant uh, investment in our uh, land-grant universities, our HBCUs, our smaller private colleges, in partnering with the private sector to give people uh, a credential or skills in uh, what a digital job uh, looks like. And a lot of these things... Uh, we don't have the proper training in a a lot of the places right now, and we haven't really funded it. Uh, And I believe if you do that, uh, you would provide a pathway to many people having these jobs. I'm working actually with Google to to do that in a number of rural communities and in uh, HBCUs. I had worked with Accenture. I mean, there are a couple of models where it's worked. We should scale that. And the second thing is I would say for government contracts require a percentage, percentage of these tech companies to have a workforce that is rural uh, or uh, African-American, Latino, to, to, to bid on these contracts. And I think that would incentivize them to diversify their workforce. And same with gender. I mean, there's, uh, there are huge issues, the whole chapter on sort of the gender and racial exclusions uh, of the Valley. I mean, absolutely. Look, I... Uh Grew up in Silicon Valley, thought I was going to go into technology, worked at Hewlett-Packard, and um, there's a reason I'm not there. <laughs> and I went into journalism, and it was because it wasn't a culture that was very receptive to, to women. Well, I and think you've so done okay with all I the totally Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, fi- <laughs> finalist books. I think, I think your career took, worked out. <laughs> I'm doing fine. <laughs> but, um, but Silicon Valley is, look, very white and male still, right? And it often seems like that is reflected in their products you know I mean a lot of these products are things that men want like you know Viagra delivery to your home and I'm still waiting for like them to build me a robot that will fold laundry you know that's like my big dream (laughs) for technology but um I I you have a proposal in your book about you know sort of diversifying Silicon Valley which has to do with giving the VC firms um, some tax credits to prompt them to invest in startups that are led by black and brown entrepreneurs or women entrepreneurs. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about that because um, you know those are firms that are already pretty savvy about getting tax credits. I'm always concerned about these big companies getting more tax credits. 
Well, I, right now, I mean, the people who are writing the checks, as, as you put it, are, are largely uh, non-diverse. And by non-diverse, it's not just that they don't have uh, women or African-Americans. They don't have people from rural communities. They don't have par- people from many parts of this, the country. And so what I say is uh, if you are going to be uh, writing checks into funds that primarily fund uh, women entrepreneurs or African-American entrepreneurs, there has to be uh, some incentive for these venture capitalists to do that. Uh, and while I'm for increasing the capital gains tax rate, one uh, possibility could be that your rate isn't increased. Do you have the same rate uh, or a lesser rate if you're actually putting the money uh, into funds that are funding entre- African-American entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs? You look at the statistics and I was shocked. I mean, about $120 billion of venture capital and less than 1% of it is going to uh, African-American uh, or Latino founders. And it's a, a, a staggering less than 0.5% going to w- uh, women of color. So, you know, they, it's a huge, huge disparity. And if you don't have some government uh, program to fix that, I don't think it fixes organically. Yeah. You also uh, propose... Um you have the Endless Frontier Act, I guess, which is now included in the infrastructure bill. In the innovation that, bill, um, yeah. And innovation, sorry. Can't keep track of all those bills. Um, and you basically are talking about how boosting federal funding for all sorts of research from NSF and also innovation, I think, that would be directed also to more diverse groups. Is that correct? Uh, correct. I mean, it would be uh, directed towards... Uh, the middle of this country, the South, towards and have greater gender and racial uh, inclusion. Uh, and it would be the largest investment in our country's history in uh, science and technology. And it's passed it the Senate. Of, um, and it's, we're hoping to pass yeah. it in the House, actually, in February. Uh, and it would be enormous for semiconductors. I mean, creating semiconductor manufacturing, which would deal with the supply chain. Intel, in my district, just announced $20 billion in Ohio to start a new semiconductor plant. That's, I wish President Biden were out there, actually, in, in Ohio. Certainly Trump would have been uh, out there. And, and, but those are the types of things that I think uh, really uh, can move the needle. I mean, if we can have significant investment in advanced technology and manufacturing, and we're spreading that out around this country, uh, it's creating new economic opportunity. You know, at the heart of the book is this sense, well, you had the deindustrialization of so many places in this country. You've had the lack of economic opportunity in places. And these are proud places. I mean, Cleveland was the Silicon Valley uh, of a time in the 20th century, as was Detroit. Uh, They don't want just all these Silicon Valley billionaires making money uh, and having some handout. They want to participate with pride in the economic production of the 21st century. Uh, And I think providing a roadmap to doing that and providing a roadmap for people in different parts of the country to work with folks on the coast may help reduce some of the bitterness, some of the uh, division uh, that's plaguing our democracy. And really that was the, the, the motivating factor for, for writing the book is how do we have technology in the service of democratic ideals as opposed to divorced from democratic ideals. And interestingly, it does involve the government really steering the ship and move and and forcing a little bit of redistribution um it's an an interesting and it reminds me a little bit of the space race you know when we got all mobilized to 
um, beat the Russians into space. And that did spur the last big sort of government spending on research, I think, in science and technology. So you're kind of proposing a similar thing, no? Similar to the, 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 the space race. And of course, I'm grateful for that because that's how my parents came to, to the United States. My father's an engineer and there were two things that basically changed the law so that he could come from India. One was uh, Dr. King, the civil rights movement, and that uh, led to the 65 Immigration Reform Act so that uh, non-Europeans basically could could come. There were huge quotas uh, against that before 65. And then the space race, where people said, we want engineers and scientists in, in this country. And what I'm saying is, yes, let's have that investment, but let's have the distribution of opportunity. And here's where I think it's important to have uh, the a distinction. This is not redistribution post-economic production, though we need, in my view, higher taxes on billionaires and millionaires. That's after production. I think the harder challenge is how do we have distribution of opportunity prior to production? Uh, there's a brilliant book, Minos Shafik, and a, a head of the London School of Economics, and she makes this whole point about how the progressive left, the Democrats, need a vision that empowers people before uh, to participate in the productive capacity of the economy. And this book is trying to do that in the digital space. Well, it's a very ambitious agenda. Um, you do have um, answers for everything, so I want to talk <laughs> about a few things that you touch on, some hot buttons. So fake news, you know, everybody has a solution for fake news, although there is no solution also at the same time. Um, yours is sort of an innovative approach, which I think, if I understand it correctly, involves people getting to choose their own algorithm that you, they use to curate their newsfeed, and that algorithm is in some ways open source. Um, it seemed like an interesting idea. I wanted to hear a little bit more about it, and also seemed like it might be easy for malicious actors to game it. So it's a very, very challenging situation, especially with the, the First Amendment, and you don't want the government being the arbiter of truth, and most people don't want Zuckerberg or Dorsey being the arbiter of truth. And so I say, well, how can we get better conversation? It turns out these two professors uh, had done this study that shows that uh, if you actually crowdsource what news people listen to, Republicans, independents, and Democrats converge on 20 uh, sites that they think uh, all would be good sources of news. Now, it includes in their Fox and it includes MSNBC, but it doesn't include some of the real far-out stuff. And what I say is if you had... Uh, an option of streaming where uh, you could stream sort of a crowdsourced news uh, option, uh, then at least maybe we start to build a common vocabulary. But the, the point of it is not that particular insight or, or proposal. There's another proposal I have uh, which says, you know, if someone is pro-choice and pro-life and you give, let's say I'm pro-choice and I send someone who's pro-life an article saying why they should be uh, pro-choice, they're likely actually to dig into their position. They're not likely to, to move or deliberate. But if it's a friend who sends them that, they may actually consider. So why don't we have social networks exposing you to alternative perspectives your friends have? That would be a simple tweak, actually, that could move the needle. My point is there's not sufficient reflection in these social media companies about their responsibility to democracy, about what they could do to be innovative to improve uh, democratic deliberation. And, uh, you know, they should probably go to the political science faculty and, and hire, you know, 50 of these folks to, to, to think about thought experiments about uh, how they can be stakeholders in democracy. But they first have to 
uh, admit that that's part of their role and it's not just profit maximization as a private company. Just to play devil's advocate, right? Like a lot, most companies don't um, see their mission as anything other than maximizing profit, right? And there is an argument out there that these companies that basically govern our speech, the, the political discourse that we have mostly takes place on their platforms, that they should be utilities because then it would, they would be forced to be neutral and then we wouldn't have them optimizing for profits because that's what their shareholders demand, but they would actually be forced to under, have a public mandate. What do you think of that argument? Well, let me address both points. I, I, I don't think a lot of media companies are simply about profit maximization. I mean, uh, I, I think that a lot of companies uh, are care about profit, but, you know, let's say, I don't know if you're still at the New York Times or, or journalism, maybe you've worked there. I mean, they care about, they have a sense of, yes, we've got to sell newspapers, but we also have to care about uh, what we're contributing to the public debate. And I think these some of these companies have to identify themselves as partly media companies. Yes, they're private companies, but they're also media companies with some obligation. Uh, I'm reluctant to have uh, these companies become utilities for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, uh, I think that hurts in part uh, the uh, innovation. I think it also forced, there's a guaranteed rate of profit, so it may entrench these companies and not allow other competitors to emerge. And then there's certain types of speech, you know, a, a public forum that is a, a public station is important uh, and, and one contributor speech, but there are a lot of speech forums we want that may not be uh, as sanitized as a uh, public forum that the government sets the reasonable rules of debate. You may want language of protest, language of anger. Uh, and so what i rather have is a multiplicity of these forums by having good competition law and then hope with good uh, privacy laws with the Internet Bill of Rights and uh, that you see a social media ethics emerge, just like you've seen a journalistic ethics emerge. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think that journalists, these companies have resisted wanting to be called media companies for all sorts of reasons, largely because of liability, right? They don't want to be liable for the content they publish. Um, as a journalist, you know, I spend all my time worried about liability and being sued and being accurate about everything I say. And so, you know, this is a hot-button issue, but where do you stand on Section 230 and liability for the tech companies? Should they, should there be carve-outs, more carve-outs than there are in Section 230 for the liability, the immunity that they've had enjoyed so far? Yes, there should. For example, I've been giving the most egregious uh, example. Facebook, according to The Ugly Truth, the book uh, recently published uh, by two journalists in the New York Times, knew, the private security knew, before January 6th that there were going to be threats on the Vice President Pence's life and threats on members of Congress's life with concrete detail. And there was a decision that Facebook made not to share that information with law enforcement and just to sit on it. That, in my view, is uh, outrageous. I mean, the Section 230 should be amended at the very least to say, if you have speech on your platforms that doesn't meet the Brandenburg test, that is an incitement to violence or an incitement to illegal conduct, you have to remove it. You could require a court order to do it, uh, but that, I think, would uh, clear these platforms of some of the most egregious content. 
You could have uh, also some basic uh, enforcement of consumer protection uh, and public health uh, safety uh, on these on these platforms. So now, do I think that they should be responsible for every single post that uh, millions of posts? No, I mean I think there has to be again a a, a balance, but there certainly uh, can be certain reforms to 230, and uh, a good start of it would be to to have court-ordered uh, speech removed, which violates Brandenburg. One of the more intriguing proposals I've heard about Section 230 is that the company should be liable for content that they choose to algorithmically amplify. So if they just circulate things chronologically or whatever, then they don't have to take responsibility. But if they're boosting things, promoting them in people's feeds, that then they've kind of involved themselves in the content and that they then should be liable. You know, I'd, I'm, I'm, I'm open to that in terms of if, if, if that is content is illegal, you're saying, under certain standards, and then they're uh, amplifying that, then they become a, a publisher in some sense of that content. I mean, that's something that uh, I, I would certainly look at, uh, and it and seems to me uh, consistent with, uh, with the First Amendment, because, uh, you know, they obviously would have the First Amendment right to amplify it, uh, but they don't have the First Amendment right to amplify defamation, and then they're actually involved. So some, some, that's another place where we can look to, to, to have reform. Um, so let's talk about something that I don't think is in your book that much, but is so hot these days, which is crypto, <laughs> blockchain, Web3, whatever you want to call it. Um, it seems to me like you... Um, Mention it as a cool innovation in the book. You, I guess, you pushed um, for some amendments recently that the crypto industry wanted clarified in legislation. Um, but as you probably know, right, there's just enormous amounts of fraud in the crypto space. I think the FTC said that there had been more than eighty million dollars worth of um, scams just in the past six months of crypto. Um, and so, I'm just curious, what do you think about? this in industry is it innovative or is it a ponzi scheme and if and what does it need to be done to rein it in if anything well i definitely think there's some baseline innovation to blockchain and the baseline innovation as i understand it to blockchain is that uh, it allows you to transfer uh, your money uh, in a quicker way things settle quicker uh, and eliminating without a, a middle person. And so you're basically saving on transaction costs for remittances overseas or for uh, moving uh, money from one place to the other. And it also allows you, for example, to engage in contracts uh, without uh, needing necessarily a third-party verifier. Uh, so you could have smart contracts. Finally, you could think of having textbooks distributed this way where everyone gets a token who wants to read a college textbook, uh, reducing the costs of, uh, of, of distribution of, of, of books uh, or of, uh, while keeping intellectual property. So there are definitely, in my understanding, uh, a value that's being created. And here I have a respectful disagreement with uh, Professor Paul Krugman, who says, well, it's just digital gold. I, yeah, it's partly could be digital gold, but it's also, I think, partly value added. Uh, but there's no doubt that there's been a lot of fraud, and there's no doubt that if something under the Howey test, uh, which is a famous SEC case, uh, is 
something that's seeking investment for appreciation, then it would be should be regulated under the SEC law uh, of, of securities. And if someone is actually doing that and seeking investment, that that, that should be uh, regulated that way. Now, there may be needing a new laws of what a digital asset is in terms of uh, how to regulate it, because a digital asset may have some sense of decentralization where the company isn't as involved. And so perhaps if it's deemed a security, what would be most helpful instead of 10Ks and 10Qs is to learn more about the blockchain itself. We can see what the regulatory framework should look like, but there definitely needs to be a regulatory framework uh, in place. We have only a little bit of time left, so I want to end on an issue that I think is everybody cares about and is one of the most emotional issues in tech, which is children and screen time. During pandemic, um, all of us parents, I think, have given up the fight. <laughs> I don't know, maybe just me, and let my kids do whatever they wanted on the screens. But um, you talk about how there should be, um, there's like flagrant violations of COPA, you argue, the Children's Online Privacy Act, and that com- the companies should really face strict liability, kick off kids under 13, um, and use maybe AI to determine if people are lying about their ages. I'd like to hear more about what you think can be done there and whether it's too late. If the horse is out of the barn, every kid is already glued to a screen. Well, first, uh, I think it's a very hard time to be a parent uh, in uh, this age. I, I say that as a, as a father. Uh, and so we have to figure out how we support parents in, uh, in, in making decisions that allow kids to still reflect and think and play outside and not just be glued to uh, their device. And the dirty secret in Silicon Valley is a lot of these tech leaders keep their uh, tech gadgets away away from their kids. Uh, And so how do we uh, ensure that? But what I write about in the book is it's always uh, struck me as absurd that these companies can't figure out if someone is too young on their platforms. I mean, give me a break. You can you have algorithms that can figure out everything else, including how to target a person down to exactly what ad they can see. And you're telling me you don't know if someone is under 13 on your platform. So my view is, one, we should raise the age of COPA, raise it to 15 or 16, and have strict liability if someone under that age is on your platforms. And the reason I would cover teenagers is, I mean, Instagram is just appalling. I mean, they basically have data knowing that uh, they are creating uh, more depression, uh, more uh, suicidal thoughts amongst teenagers. And how does that, how do we accept that? I mean, there ought to be consumer protection laws that make that illegal. And those kids shouldn't be having likes and shares if, if that's what is uh, the result. I mean, even if you want to have likes and shares for uh, adults, uh, you, you have to make sure that uh, for for minors uh, there are greater protections. And uh, I I write about you know wh- where I think some of the things can be strengthened. Senator Markey has been leading the effort in the Senate. It seems to me that actually has bipartisan support and, and could become law. Great. Well, I'll leave it at an optimistic moment that maybe we will have some protection for our kids. And thank you very much for taking time to discuss your book. It was a real pleasure to discuss all this with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. 
Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs> 